0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Our vision here at Alliance Bible Church is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. At the core of what we're about is the gospel. The gospel does all the heavy lifting, does all the heavy lifting. It does all the work. The gospel itself is captivating all on its own. It does not need a boost from us as the short kid needs help getting over a fence. Doesn't need our help. Our job is to hoist it up the tallest flagpole we can find and call people together around it. And the scriptures are clear as to what happens when we do that. People from every generation will crowd around it. We are a multi-generational church because the gospel is a multi-generational message. We're a multi-generational church because the gospel is a multi-generational power. Power. Pastor Duane talked about last week. It never wears out. It doesn't grow old. And we know that the gospel points us to and is the source of the good life. The greener grass conspiracy is alive and well in our day and age. And it seductively lures many people in. Only for them to find out that things like money and acceptance and prestige and power and notoriety and hundreds of other created things cannot deliver on their promises. Only the gospel possesses the attributes needed to bring rest to weary souls. Now, our five values here are practices that every one of us need to embody repetitiously in order to see our vision come to fruition. If we as a church practice these values, we hold to these values, we embody these values, we incarnate these values, we'll get traction in seeing our vision accomplished. Now today we're on value number three, gospel community, the church is a taste of heaven. The church is meant to be a harbinger, a precursor, a forerunner of the new heavens and the new earth. If you're looking for heaven on earth, forget Disney, forget Bora Bora, yes, forget Lambeau Field. If you're looking for heaven on earth, you need to look no further than the church. The church. We're going to look at Romans 12 today. Romans 12. Get your Bibles open. We're going to take a look at it together. Romans 12. Starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. is a taste of heaven. Here's what we're going to look at from this passage, particularly as it relates to gospel community. We're going to look at the moral structure of gospel community, the family nature of gospel community, and the material support of gospel community. The moral structure of it, the family nature of it, and the material support of it. First, the moral structure of gospel community. Now, it might seem strange the exhortation to love is immediately followed by a command to hate. Did you notice that? But in explaining that genuine love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good, Paul is telling us something about love that may be counterintuitive to those of us living in the West in the 21st century. Sometimes the loving thing to do is hate. Hmm. Well, let's think about that together. On the one hand, the way Paul phrases this tells us that he's rejecting the idea that that evil is defined by what I abhor. He's rejecting that. Evil is not defined by what I abhor. He's rejecting the idea that, that good is defined by what I hold fast to. There is such a thing as good and evil, but they are not defined by what I think or what you think or how we feel. They are realities outside us. Good or evil are good or evil objectively, objectively. So evil may not be what you want to be evil. Good may not be what you want to be good. Liking something doesn't make it good. Hating something doesn't make it evil. We don't make something good or evil. It is good or evil objectively. The imperative in this short verse is on what our posture towards good and evil ought to be. Our hearts can cling to things because we desire them. And our hearts can reject things because we don't desire them. But Paul is saying, here's good, here's evil. Now, bring your emotions and your will into proper and fitting alignment and conformity to what is objectively there. It looks as though Paul is saying something essential about love. Everyone agrees that love means at least doing things for people that are good for them, not bad for them. That's love. So when Paul says, let love be genuine, abhorring the evil and embracing the good, it's the loving thing to do to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. Which means that what God calls evil must be bad for people. And what God calls good must be good for people. It's not the other way around. We don't decide what is good for people and what is bad for people and then define love that way. God decides what is good, what is bad, and we follow that and we call it love. Because what God says is good is good for people and what God says is bad is bad for people. So what is evil and what is good Well, let's work through just a few verses. Let me stay in Romans to start. Romans chapter 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So, as an example, we have to learn to hate Envy and deceit and gossip and slander. Having an intense desire for something that doesn't belong to you is envy and it should be hated. The habit of speaking things that are deceptive or false is a habit to be hated. The act of speaking maliciously about someone to the detriment of their reputation is an act to be hated. Abhorring evil is a characteristic of gospel community. Abhorring evil is a characteristic of gospel community. Sometimes love requires hate. Now here's why that's important. When you care about someone, oftentimes our sense of right and wrong can get thrown off because you just want them to be happy. And so when you see them doing something that you know is wrong, but it seems to be making them happy, you don't really say anything because you don't want to make them upset. But that's not a sign of love. It's a lack of love. See, Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth even when it made us so mad we killed him for it. Love like that. Love like that. You have to be willing to tell people the truth even if it means they're going to get mad at you. What God says is good is good for people. What God says is bad is bad for people. That's how we love. But clinging to what is good is also characteristic of gospel community, not just abhorring what's evil, hating what's evil. Clinging to what's good is characteristic of gospel community. Where do we start with that? How do we define good? Well, we could start with Jesus' words, where Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Every word God speaks is good. Every action God takes is good. Listen, it is always the loving thing to do to point others to the Lord. It is always the loving thing to do to point other people to the Lord. Romans chapter 7 says, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The word of God is good. It's always loving, always loving to point people's attention to the word of God. It's always loving to do that. First Timothy two. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. Praying for those in leadership is good. Cling to that. 1 Timothy 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Doctrine is good. Hold fast to it, point people to it. 1 Timothy 5, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Paul is going to define good works if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Bringing up children is good. Showing hospitality is good. Taking care of the practical needs, the daily needs of believers is good. Caring for the sick or the injured is good. Hold fast to these things. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sharing what you have is good. Cling to these things. A gospel community hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. This is the moral structure of a gospel community. Second, the family nature of gospel community. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. With brotherly affection. So Paul uses a term here that conveys the idea of having an automatic and deep bond like that of a mother for an infant. Imagine, imagine a brother or sister who, if they weren't siblings, would never have chosen each other to be their friend. Okay, picture that. Not hard? If they hadn't found themselves in the same household, they wouldn't have had anything to do with each other. But because they're family, they relate and love like family. That's the picture. That's the picture Paul gives us. Gospel community is characterized by people who ordinarily wouldn't have anything to do with each other. But because of their shared common bond in Christ, They relate like blood relatives. If you're rude at Thanksgiving dinner, you still get invited back next year. (laughs) Why? We're family. We're family. I love the way C.S. Lewis put this. He says, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. (laughs) It broadens their minds so. Reflecting on this kind of love, this is how Lewis took it. Dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their minds, so that's the picture. David Martin Lloyd Jones is a physician in Britain. From, he's a physician from about 1910 to 1920. He was a very uh, highly educated man in a society that was very class conscious. And when he was called into ministry, he took a a church in Sandfields, um, which is a very small, uh, blue-collar town on the ocean in Wales. And his church was filled with tin makers and fishermen and very simple, humble people. And as he began to minister among them, though he had nothing in common with them, and in the past would have had no affinity with them whatsoever, when he was preaching the gospel to this church that he was pastoring, and all these people were coming to discover that they were sinners saved by grace, he began to feel a bond and a connection that shouldn't have been there. A bond that he hadn't felt before with people of such a different class and station in life. And then Jones came upon a place in Ephesians 1 verse 15, where Paul says that one of the tests of Christian faith is that you have a love for all Christians. And Lloyd-Jones wrote a sermon on that text that meant a lot to him. And he says in it, people I would never have chosen, people of a different class, race, temperament, I feel a bond with them. He began to realize that, that he had the marks of a genuine Christian. The bank account didn't matter. The temperament didn't matter. He acknowledged some of these people are very difficult. Some of these people are not very pleasant. They're not cool. They're not hip. They're not sophisticated. Loewy Jones said, I don't care anymore. I feel a connection with them. I don't have with people of my own class who haven't had the paradigm shifting power of the gospel at work in them. And in that sermon, he wrote this. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, had a father, Philip Henry, and a mother, whom Jones doesn't name, 1600s, and they had fallen in love. Philip Henry belonged to a much lower social class than his fiancee, Matthew Henry's future mother. But when she had become a Christian, social standing no longer mattered to her. However, her parents were not pleased. And they came to her and said, this man, Philip Henry, we don't know his family. We don't know where he comes from. She responded very famously, I don't know where he's from. All that matters to me is I know where he's going. Jones went on and said this, we belong to the same father, the same household, the same family. We are going to the father's mansion and we know it. Some brothers and sisters are very difficult. Some are very trying. Some are very unworthy, but that doesn't bother us. We've stopped selecting them. And he says this, we've stopped auditioning people like we do in every area of life. We've stopped auditioning people. Thank God because we're all God's children. We're all on the journey together and the day will come when all our faults and blemishes will disappear. We shall be glorified and beautiful together. And we know that. See, gospel community means we are marked by a lack of incredible snobbishness towards people of different temperaments, personalities, races, and classes. We don't have snobbishness towards this group or that group. Though we may be incredibly different from one another, We love like family. This brings up an important point about church. See, church is not an event you attend. It's not an event you attend. It's a family you belong to. Where you show up for dinner, not because you like what's on the menu, but because it's family. Third, the material support of gospel community. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So love here is not sentimentality. It's concrete action. Here's a brief sampling of what the New Testament teaches about contributing to needs. Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the question. How do we avoid laying up treasures on earth? Well, Jesus says that, and answers that question in Luke 12. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Well, the early church caught on to this. And they applied... What they had heard and experienced by assuming that all their possessions were not really theirs, but God's and were to be joyfully used to meet each other's needs. So we have this summary statement from Luke in Acts chapter four. He says, there was not a needy person among them, that church, there was not a needy person among that church. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then Paul picks up on this. And he taught to the churches. To Titus, he wrote, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And at the church in Corinth, Paul said this, each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In the church in Ephesus, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love this verse. In other words, the whole orientation of the Christian, listen, the whole orientation of the Christian is not work to have. That's not the orientation of the Christian. The whole orientation of the Christian is work to have to give. Got the difference? Work to have to give. Give. This is what led Randy Alcorn to say this. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. If there's more coming in, there's more going out. The Roman Emperor Julian, um, back in the 100s AD, was one of the fiercest persecutors of the Christian church. He once said in disgust this. He said, The Christian cause has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there is not a single one who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, this is how he referred to Christians. The godless Galileans, those are Christians. From Emperor Trajan's mouth. It is a scandal that there's not a single one who's a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. (laughs) He was ticked off and annoyed because the Christian church was doing a better job of taking care of Rome's poor than Rome was. He was absolutely irritated. And part of his irritation wasn't just out of the charity that was taking place, but it was magnifying and increasing the influence of the Christian church throughout the Roman Empire. The church is really the greatest welfare system the world has ever seen. The best community of people a person in need ought to be committed to is the church. I'm grateful to God who richly supplied us so that we could give assistance to those in our church this past year in the amount of $32,000. I'm grateful to God that our church was able to be a financial contributor to a Habitat for Humanity home building project in Grafton this last year. You all together have, have supplied family sharing and care net with thousands of pounds of food and supplies that they need, To care for people all over Southeast Wisconsin. And let's not forget something here. There are hundreds of ways you, as individuals, without drawing attention to yourselves, have contributed to the needs of those in our church and our community. Way to go! Way to go! Keep up the great work. Now, what's fascinating about this passage from Romans 12 is that for most of the book, Paul has not been talking about gospel community. He has been talking about gospel doctrine, the sinfulness of humanity, the wrath-satisfying work of Christ on the cross, the place of faith, union with Christ, and so on. So when we get to this latter part of Romans, we're left with the impression that Paul is transitioning to discussing the outflow of gospel doctrine which is gospel community. They're not separate unrelated topics. Gospel doctrine is the spring from which bursts forth gospel community. Gospel community is evidence of gospel doctrine. So if we want to see the generations captivated with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ, we need gospel centrality. Gospel doctrine and what it produces, gospel community. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. And Lord, we do want to be a unique community. We want to be a community that truly is and serves as a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. Or we live in a world where people are hungry for this, even if they don't know what it is they're hungry for. We live in a world where this kind of community is rare and not often seen or experienced. So I pray, God, that you would make us unique in the world. That there wouldn't be another place on this planet like it. Lord, that we would have a moral structure to our community that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. That we would have a family nature to our community. Where we show up for dinner, not because we like what's on the menu, but because we're family. And God, I pray... uh, If people are looking for an example of generosity, caring for those in need, they'd have to look no further than the church. We praise you for this and we respond in worship to the glory of Christ's name. Amen.